Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Well, we'll finish by God's grace tonight. The book of Judges, we'll be looking at Judges chapter 20 and Judges chapter 21. I believe that these chapters really go together and it's not necessarily because I wanna be done with the book of Judges. However, I have to admit, boy, it just gets really, really discouraging the farther that you go. But that's not why we're gonna combine these tonight. I do believe that these texts go together. And so we're going to give you an overview of Judges 20 and 21 and then give you some final thoughts and a message that I have entitled Lessons from a Degenerate Nation. Lessons from a Degenerate Nation. There's no doubt by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges that you're looking at a nation that is degenerate. Now, the term degenerate lacking some property, order, or distinctive structure previously or usually present. It can be used as a noun, meaning this, an immoral or corrupt person. It can also be used as a verb, degenerate, meaning decline or deteriorate physically, mentally, or morally. I would say the definitions for the adjective, the noun, and the verb, all of them would fit very well with what we have seen from the people of Israel. Because when you look at the end of the book of Joshua, you see Joshua standing before a people who were not perfect, but were victorious there in the promised land where he said, choose you this day whom ye will serve. And they said, we will serve the Lord. And he said, ye will not serve the Lord. Remember how he kind of gave that little pushback to him. And they said, no, really, we will serve the Lord. And then you get to judges and you find out, well, they're not really going to serve the Lord. And so what do we see? They were degenerating from the place that they were uh, when they were in the book of Joshua until you get to the end of the book of Judges. Remember, the last five chapters are not necessarily in chronological order, but it does give us an overall moral picture of what the people of Israel had become, especially as you get into the book of 1 Samuel, which we'll be looking at after we go through the book of Ruth. Now, this is a nation that was on the decline, but it was a nation that didn't have to be on the decline. They were only on that slippery slope. They were only on that greasy pole because they had gotten away from God and they had gotten away from his word. This, what we see here in Judges tonight, and what we've seen in the verses previous in the last few weeks was never God's intention for the people of God. What we see them doing, how we see them acting, how we see them so far away from what God would have them to be was never what God's intention was for them. But as we look at these final two chapters in Judges, I believe there's some things that we can learn, not just from these two chapters, but really from the entire book itself to hopefully give us some encouragement that we don't have to be degenerate even when the world around us is degenerating. And so if you would, you can remain seated tonight, but we're going to read from Judges chapter number 20, and we're going to begin in verse number one as you remain seated this evening. The word of God says this, Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation was gathered together as one man from Dan, even to Beersheba, with the land of Gilead, even unto the Lord in Mitzvah. By the way, from Dan to Beersheba, as we've mentioned before, talks about the northernmost point to the southernmost point. Gilead would be the easternmost point on the other side of the Jordan River, meaning this, everybody who called themselves of the people of Israel has been gathered together 
other than the tribe of Benjamin. You'll remember the tribe of Benjamin uh, was offending in the sense that uh, previously in the chapter before that in Gilead or rather in, um, in Gibeah, everybody but Gibeah, everybody but the people of Benjamin are gathered because Gibeah did wickedly when they did some, and again, understanding the age bracket that we have here this evening, did wicked things upon the concubine and then had no remorse whatsoever for that. And so now is coming the time where there's going to be a reckoning for what happened in the previous chapters. All right. All right. Getting back to where we were. Verse number two. And the chief of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 footmen that drew sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel were gone up to Mitzpah. Then said the children of Israel, tell us, how was this wickedness? And the Levite, the husband of the woman that was slain, answered and said, I came into Gibeah, there it is, that belongeth to Benjamin, I and my concubine to lodge. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and beset the house round about upon me by night and thought to have slain me and my concubine they have forced that she is dead. Now, I find it interesting that he uh, omitted the fact that he was complicit in everything that happened there, that he literally sacrificed her for his own safety. He doesn't mention that to put himself in the most favorable light. But verse 6 continues, And I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed lewdness and folly in Israel. Behold, ye are all children of Israel. Give here your advice and counsel. And all the people arose as one man, saying, We will not any of us go to his tent, neither will we any of us turn into his house. But now this shall be the thing which we shall do to Gibeah, and we will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men of an hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and an hundred of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to fetch victual for the people that they may do when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, according to all the folly that they have wrought in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. And what we see here will be the beginning of a saga that will take place over two chapters, several pages in your Bible of this war that takes place, a civil war, and there was nothing civil about it, between the people of Israel and one tribe, Benjamin, who had the offending city Gibeah inside of it that had done this great and wicked thing. Now, as we look at this text here tonight and we try to give an overview of these final two chapters, we see a degenerate nation that falls right before our eyes. As if the sins of the previous two chapters, which we've already covered, weren't egregious enough, they continue down the greasy pole to such a degree that what happens in these two chapters is hard to comprehend. And again, tonight I'm going to give you just a basic overview of these two chapters. I would encourage you to take courage and go through and read both of these chapters for yourself later on to get a full view and a full understanding of how far the people of Israel had fallen. Now you might say, Pastor, isn't it a little bit harsh for the people of Israel to come and to take arms against their own people, the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't that a little bit harsh? Is that something that they should be doing? And the answer is, well, according to the word of the Lord, that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing if there's an unrepentant people group that is within their ranks there in the people of Israel at that time. So keep your space there in Judges chapter 20 and turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 13. Very quickly, Deuteronomy chapter number 13 because I want to give you the law of Moses here in this retelling of the law in Deuteronomy to the reason why Israel would feel compelled to go and take arms against Gibeah 
and against Benjamin. Deuteronomy chapter number 13, and we'll begin by looking at verse number 12. And it says this, If thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire, and make search, and ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth, and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought among you, then thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shalt burn it with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof every whit, for the Lord thy God, and it shall be in heap forever, it shall not be built again. And there shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger, and show thee mercy, and have compassion upon thee, and multiply thee, as he has sworn unto his fathers, when thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep all his commandments, which I have commanded thee this day, to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. And I would say that as we read Deuteronomy chapter 13 here, this fits very well with what we see of the wickedness that took place in Gibeah, and in Benjamin. And I will say that the people of Israel did not want to necessarily uh, persecute or necessarily go through and overthrow all of Gibeah and all of Benjamin. We find later on in the chapter, chapter number 20 of the book of Judges, that the people of Israel go to Benjamin and they say this, deliver us the people who have done wickedly because their desire was simply to have justice against those who had done so wickedly against the concubine. But Gibeah, instead of giving up those who had done wrong, closed ranks on them and basically said this, you want them? Come get them. Benjamin closes ranks on Gibeon, or Gibeah rather, and says, you want Gibeah? Then you get all of us. And so what ends up happening is war is declared because sin was not confessed and taken care of. And by the way, this is my message tonight. But you know, we are much better off when we just confess and forsake sin. The more we try to double down and the more we just try to hide it and the more we just try to, to justify what it is, we're much better off dealing with the consequences of sin for what they are instead of trying to hide it, instead of trying to point the fingers at someone else, instead of trying to be able to say, look over here while we hide it over on this side. We'd be much better off just being right with God and being right with one another and taking the consequences as they come. But this isn't what they do. Gibeah says this, you can't have the people that offend. And Benjamin says, you can't have this city which within our tribe. You want to get us? Then come and get us. And so what ends up unfolding is civil war that takes place between Israel, 11 tribes, and Benjamin, one tribe. And as we go through in chapter number 20, you find what happens is this, is that the first day of battle that takes place, Israel doesn't just lose, but they lose badly. Verse number 21 tells us that uh, they lose 22,000 of their 400,000 soldiers on day one. So they go back to the Lord and they say, Lord, uh, what do we do? We know that this is a just and right cause. And they go out to the battle in day number two. And verse number 25 tells us that in day two, Israel loses another 18,000 soldiers. Now, listen, 11 tribes against one tribe, it should be very clear that the 11 tribes should win. They have the numerical advantage by a great number. But yet it seems that God is trying to bring a lesson to the people of Israel as well, that maybe it's not just Benjamin that has some skeletons in their closet, 
but literally that it's all of Israel that has sin that they need to confess. Because in two days of battle, they lose 40,000 people. Well, what happens? They start to weep and they start to confess and they start to go before the Lord and they say, Lord, what's happening? What are we doing? We think that we're doing right and we think that we're doing justly. Will you please just tell us what we need to do? And God says this, go to battle the third day. You'll go for the third day and this day you will win. And the third day they do go. And the third day they do win. And they don't just win. They win in such a manner that by the time the battle is over in the day, uh, the, the Benjamites end up dwindling to 1,600 soldiers left, a very small amount. And then by the time you get to the end of chapter number 20, there's 600 men of Benjamin that are all clinging to this rock called Rimmon, which is this rocky outcropping where they would have the high ground. And so there's 600, basically we can put it this way, of the tribe of the men of Benjamin, there's 600 men left. And Israel comes through and ransacks most of Benjamin, their cities, their people, everything fulfilling Deuteronomy chapter number 13. And really by the end of Judges chapter number 20, one tribe of Israel is almost wiped off the map. Only 600 men seem to be left. There are others that very likely may have scattered, but there's 600 that are gathered together on this rock called Rimmon that are there. Chapter number 21 begins, and the people of Israel start to weep because they realize the great cost that this battle exacted upon the family of God. And they say, what have we done to Benjamin and what's going to happen here? And in fact, uh, we find that during this chapter, in chapter number 20, they say, Benjamin will not continue. Benjamin will be wiped off the face of the earth because now these men don't have wives. They, they, we don't know what to do after this generation passes of just these men from Benjamin, this little pittance that's left. They'll have nothing left. They have nowhere to go. And so they say, well, here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to provide wives for these 600 men so they can go ahead and, well, they can start their tribe over again from the beginning. The problem was this. In chapter number 20, they swore an oath and they said, nobody who's here will ever provide anything for the people of Benjamin. And now they got to keep their oath. So they can't really help them in essence. They can't provide uh, wives for them. They can't provide any assistance. So they look around and say, hey, was there anyone here from the people of Israel that didn't come and send soldiers to the common Israeli uh, fighting force. Is there any city that just kind of shirked its responsibility and didn't send anybody to the battle? And they make a, a survey of the amount of people that were there and they find out there's a town called Jabesh Gilead. And Jabesh Gilead ignored the call to arms and didn't send any soldiers. And they said this, here's what we do. We go to Jabesh Gilead and we wipe the town out. But we make sure that if there's any young women who have never had relation with a man, we will save them and we will preserve them and we will give those women as the wives for the 600 men that are left in Benjamin. Now, let me just take a moment in case you're not comprehending all of this, how weird and sick this all is. We're going to kill everyone in this city that's of our people that did nothing wrong except not sending soldiers for whatever reason, we don't know. But we're gonna take their women and we're gonna force them into shotgun marriages with men they don't know, uh, just so that this tribe can be preserved because we want this tribe to be preserved because we almost wiped them out uh, because of the sin that they had done before. This is getting weird. 
and if it's not bad enough, they picked Jabesh Gilead, which was a town that didn't have enough women in it to provide wives for the 600 men. They're 200 short. Well, what are we going to do? We still have 200 men who need wives if Benjamin's going to perpetuate. They said, you know what? There's a festival that's near Shiloh. And the women, they come to this festival with their dances. And by the way, we don't know what festival this is because it doesn't resemble any of the festivals that God had said that they were to have. So it may very well have been some sort of pagan festival that they had actually co-opted from Baal worship or one of the other Canaanite gods that were there. And so they said those women will come and they will uh, dance and they will come towards this, uh, towards this feast, towards this holy day. And what we're going to do is we're going to have some of these men in hiding. And what they'll do is when the women come by, they'll jump out and grab them. No, no, this is in the Bible. Let me just make this clear. Say, Pastor, you've got to be making this up. No, this is in the Bible. Grab them, take them as your wives, and that will satisfy the desire to make sure that all, all 600 men have wives. And that's exactly what happened. And it's no wonder that if you were to turn to Judges chapter number 21, verse number 25, where mercifully the book of Judges ends, we see for the fourth and the final time, these words, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You go through Judges chapter 20 and you go through Judges chapter 21. Do it on your own. I gave you a very quick synopsis of what those two chapters entail. And I would challenge you this. Try to find the good guys. Go through chapter 20 and 21 and try to find the good guys because you will struggle very mightily to find someone who is doing right. And as I've mentioned before, in the previous three chapters where this all started with this greasy pole business where they were in false doctrine and they continued to degenerate and go down and down and down, uh, the one who is noticeably absent from these chapters is God Almighty. Oh, sure, he is mentioned when they are in trouble and 40,000 men die, uh, and they know that they might die as well, so they ask God for his help. But when it comes to chapter number 21 and they realize, wow, we've almost wiped out an entire tribe of our, of our people. What do we do? No one asked God what he thinks should be done. No one brought the Urim and the Thummim. No one brought the priest. No one asked God what should be done. They said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's wipe out a whole town and take the women folk and then force them to marry these men. And oh, oh we picked a town with not enough women in it. What do we got to do? Well, there's some women that'll be dancing near Shiloh. Why don't we grab them and force them to marry these other 200 men? And then our nation will be saved. God wasn't anywhere within a thousand miles of this plan, nor was God asked about this plan. But this is what happens when a nation degenerates and gets far from God. By the way, there is no barrier to where that nation will go, which gets us to what I'd like to talk about here this evening. And that's not to say that we want to take the word of God and then depart from it and talk about what I want to talk about, but to say this, what we've learned from chapters number 20 and 21 plus what we have learned from the book of Judges, I think there's some very important and believe it or not, actually encouraging lessons for us tonight in the midst of watching a nation degenerate right before our eyes. So I want us to look at these lessons very quickly tonight. And the first one is this. I want you to realize this. The world is only ever limited by its imagination. 
the world is only ever limited by its imagination. Pastor, it's as bad as it could possibly get out there right now in the world. And my answer to that is, no, it's not. That the world is only limited by its imagination. There is no limit. The things that we see now, there will be people, if Jesus tarries 50 years from now, they'll say this. Imagine the good old days in 2023 when we only dealt with because the world is only limited by its imagination. When you are untethered from the word of God, there is no limit to where the world will go and what it will do. Romans chapter one, why don't you turn there quickly? Uh, you may be familiar with this passage, but this is one of those passages I feel like if you've never read it before, it's a good one to have marked in your Bible to understand a little bit about what's going on in our world today. Romans chapter number one, verse number 21. The world is only limited by its imagination when it comes to the things of sin. Verse number 21 says this, Because that when they knew not God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. By the way, this isn't my message either, but it's amazing to me that one of the marks of the world is thanklessness. There's probably a message somewhere in there if I worked hard enough at it. That one of the marks of the world, I mean being apart from God, is a thankless spirit. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. If that doesn't scream 2023, I don't know what does. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, whereof God also gave them up to uncleanness through their lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This could be ripped right from the headlines of 2023. And it goes on and says, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Meaning this, God said, I've tried to get you to repent and I've tried to get you to repent and I've tried to get you to repent, but you don't want to repent. So you can have that which you are seeking after. And what is that? It says, for even their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature. And I think we could talk about that, uh, meaning uh, whether it's uh, homosexuality or transgenderism, we see that right there changing against nature itself. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burden their lust toward one another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, uh, unmerciful, uh, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Friend, that's the world that we see right there. And that's the world that we see not just 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul is writing this by the inspiration of God, but it's literally what we see in our world today. And we're reminded when we read the book of Judges, you say, well, how far can it go? The answer is there's no limit to how far it can go. Because just when you think evil has mined its deepest depths, it finds even greater things to, be go, to go even deeper than that which we could possibly imagine. And so we need to be reminded sometimes, well, you know, this is as bad as it's going to get. Well, it could possibly get worse. 
it could possibly get much worse. In fact, we're told that as the time grows closer, uh, that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You can count on the fact that it's going to get darker before Jesus Christ comes. Uh, but as I see, you say, well, that you said there was some encouragement. Well, number one's not the encouragement, all right? I'll, I'll tell you that that's for certain that number one's not the encouragement. It's something that I've seen in the book of Judges that we keep seeing over and over again. I think it's important that we're reminded of that. But at the same time, number two, on the road of the backslider, God provides many exit ramps. On the road of the backslider, God provides many exit ramps. How many times in the book of Judges could God have said to Israel, you're done? You're done. But over and over again, he gives them what I would call an exit ramp. He gives them an opportunity to get off of the broad road of sin and to repent. In fact, we can look in Judges chapter 20 and 21 and find there were many what I would call decision points where they could have had the opportunity to realize, what are we doing? We're out of our mind. Somebody call a priest. Somebody get the word of God. Somebody, we got to get a hold of God here. What, are, what have we turned ourselves into? And God continually gave them these exit ramps to stop and to consider where they were going and what they were doing. But like a gambler who thinks they can win it all back if they just keep gambling, a sinner often feels the only way to justify themselves is to keep going the same direction and eventually the ship will ride itself. Eventually the house won't win. But just like the gambler who keeps gambling is not going to win that money back. In fact, he's only going deeper in. The one who refuses to repent and just thinks, well, if I keep going the same direction that's apart from God, if I just keep doing it long enough, it's got to work itself out, right? Well, no, because a loving God will not approve your sin or your life and will lovingly but consistently correct you. I mean, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, you belong to him, he's going to correct you. You're part of the family, the father's going to correct you. When you tell me that God doesn't chasten you, that's when I'm scared because the Bible says he only chastens his own. If he doesn't correct you when you're in sin, that tells me this, you may not be his own. You may not belong to him. But despite all of these things, God continually gave them options. You don't have to keep going this way. Not to keep, listen, Benjamin could have just given up Gibeon and Gibeon could have just given up the men who did so wickedly and the situation would have been done without bloodshed other than the retribution of those men who had taken that concubine's life. Israel didn't have to destroy all of Benjamin. It could have destroyed just Gibeon. Gibeon Deuteronomy 13 makes it clear that the offending city could be destroyed, but not necessarily the whole tribe. By the way, Israel didn't need to destroy Jabesh Gilead because they didn't do anything wrong other than not sending soldiers, but we don't even know the reason that they didn't send soldiers in the first place. And then even when that happened and they still didn't have enough women, they didn't have to go and hide in the bushes and literally steal women and try to force them to marry these men of Benjamin. And over and over again, somebody, oh, somebody could have said, what are we doing? Say, Pastor, it doesn't work like that. Tell the prodigal. Because the prodigal's in a pig pen, and he went as low as he possibly could get. And instead of putting his face in the slop and eating it, he said this. What am I doing here? My father's hired servants have much better treatment than I do here. He said, I'm better 
to go to my father and just beg him to be a worker, to, to work in his fields and to be here. And he, the Bible says literally that he came unto himself. And there's a reminder that maybe your walk with God is not what it used to be. Maybe you felt like you've backslidden or maybe you realize even here tonight, well, well, pastor, I know that I'm here bodily, but mentally, spiritually, I'm not where I was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago or 20 years ago. I have good news for you here tonight. Here's some encouragement that God continually gives exit ramps. He gives you opportunities when you're on the road of backsliding to be able to say this, I want to get right with God. And there is not a child of his. There is not even a soul that's on this earth that, that wants to truly humbly repent that God will say, you're not worthy of my forgiveness. I'm going to run that by you again. There's not a soul on this earth who doesn't truly and humbly repent that God says, uh, you are not able to receive my forgiveness. None of us are worthy of his forgiveness, but yet he lavishes upon us over and over again. So I don't care how far you've gotten away from God tonight. You say, Pastor, it's a Sunday night crowd. I mean, these are good people. We're good people. Well, you may be. I, I, I pray that we all are. But I do also know this. We're people who can fall from God and fall from our walk. And I don't care how far you think you've gotten. I don't know what you've gotten yourself into. I don't know what you're doing or where you're going or what's going on. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know. But I do know this, that God continually provided the exit ramps to the backsliders here in Judges over and over again. A, a merciful God in the midst of a wicked nation. And that merciful God is still giving mercy and grace today. You know what I see in Judges? I see the world is only limited by its imagination. Ehud. Remember him? The left-handed assassin that helped free the Israelites? What about Deborah? When the men wouldn't stand up, Deborah was the one who was willing to do the work that none of the men wanted to do. Gideon when the Midianites had oppressed the people of Israel. And Gideon really wasn't much of a man of courage himself. God saw in him what Gideon didn't see in himself when he called him a mighty man of valor. But these were men and women who went against the current. These were men and women that didn't really have anyone to encourage them to do right. They just did right because it was the right thing to do. And what's amazing is each of those and many others that we find in the book of Judges as well changed the trajectory of the people of Israel forever because there was one person who was willing to stand for God. And I know this may sound like it's contrary to what I talked about this morning, the church and us working together and, and being a body and all those things, and we are all of those things. But I will say this, that you individually, on your own, where you're at, where God has placed you and planted you here in this world, you can make a big impact for God right where you are. And that's an amazing thing. The book of Judges is a great reminder that one person wholly dedicated to God can change the trajectory of an entity that's going the wrong direction. You know, one teen on fire could change a whole school for God. A church member on fire could change a whole church. A, a family member could change the trajectory of their whole family. A citizen could change the government. You say, well, pastor, you know, that, that's, that's just far-fetched stuff. That's stuff that doesn't, you know, I'm not talking about Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of stuff here tonight. I'm not talking about some kind of movie. I'm talking about the reality of this, is that one person can make a big impact for God. One person. But pastor, look at what it's like outside. 
I think we know what it's like outside. We just covered that. And it's going to get worse. But that doesn't preclude the fact that one person who is set apart for God and his purposes can make a big impact today. Listen, this stuff that the world's doing, a lot of it is just shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. In the grand scheme of life, it makes no difference. But you know, if you just won one soul to Christ, that you change the course of eternity? Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware of the things that are going out there and, and talk to, listen, we're supposed to talk to those people to be able to win them to Christ. I'm not saying we should ignore those things. What I'm saying is this, is that one person, even in the midst of great difficulty and strife in this world today, can make a big impact for God. But it's not just that. And this is where I want to focus on in my fourth and final point tonight. Lessons from the book of Judges. Lessons from a degenerate nation. Not only can one person make a big impact for God, number three, but number four, the course of a nation doesn't dictate the course of an individual. If I can leave you with one thing tonight, it's this. The course of a nation does not dictate the course of an individual. Just because the people of Israel were doing wrong didn't mean that Ehud had to do wrong. Just because the Philistines were who they were didn't mean that Samson had to live like the Philistines. Just because uh, the people of Israel were enslaved and afraid didn't mean that a Deborah couldn't stand up. A Gideon, and over and over again. Sure, one person can make a big impact for God, but it's not just that they can make a big impact, it's that they can make a big impact despite what we see going on all around us. Well, pastor, I would serve God more, but the situation would just have to be a lot better. The world would have to be in a different place. You know, pastor, if we were started a church 100 years ago, things would be different. Or if we started a church 50 years ago, things would be different. But we're not. God has appointed us for this time, for this season, to live in this nation. And just because the world has gone the way the world has does not mean that Christians have to go the way of the world. Just because Christians, just because the world is going the direction that it is and the culture is going the direction it is, doesn't mean that we have to be dragged in the same direction. No, no, we can truly be counterculture simply by doing what the Word of God says. And here's the thing, the world can't stop us. Do you realize that? You can serve God and the world can't stop you. I'll let that marinate for a second. We give the world far too much power sometimes. The world can't stop you from praying. The world can't stop you from worshiping. The world can't stop you uh, from sharing your faith. The world, I'm not talking about being a rebel. I'm just talking about the fact that the pressures laid upon us by this world and by this culture that want to silence us. No, no, listen, you can serve God and be right with God and the world can't stop you. But sometimes we feel like, oh, it's just in this day and age that we live in today, there's just no other, like, I get it. We've gone through five chapters of some pretty nasty stuff here at the end of Book of Judges. And we realize that there's some similarities to the nation that we live in today. But that doesn't mean that a church can't fulfill the mission that God has called it to fulfill. That doesn't mean that a family can't live godly in the midst of an ungodly world. That doesn't mean that an individual can't be a light and can't be salt in the midst of a workplace or in the midst of a school or in the midst of the shopping mall or wherever they are, that you and I, despite the nation that we live in, despite the culture that we live in, still can be salt and light and the world can't force us to not be salt and light. 
You know what ends up stopping us from being salt and light? Our own fear. Our own flesh. Our own earthly desires. But here in the book of Judges, in the midst of a mess, this book's a mess in so many ways, there are people who rose to the top and made a difference for God despite the world and despite the lackluster nature of many of God's people. And yet they did great things for God. That same God is real today. That same God is here tonight. Say, Pastor, I don't know that I see it. Could I remind you that in the midst of the timeline of the book of Judges, in the midst of the timeline of the book of Judges, there's going to be a man named Boaz who owns a field in a place called Bethlehem, Judah. There's going to be a famine. Many people will leave. But he stays because he knows this is where God's told him to stay. He remains faithful. He's going to end up meeting a Moabitess named Ruth. Ruth was outside of the household of Israel, but yet she says to her mother-in-law, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. And your God will be my God. Under his wings, I'll come to trust. And the midst of this mess, one of the most beautiful love stories of the Bible will take place in four beautiful chapters. You know why I want to preach the book of Ruth? Because I'm so sick of the book of Judges. I need some time in the book of Ruth to recover. And so do you. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened smack dab in the timeline of the book of Judges. You know what happened at the end of the book of Judges, the beginning of 1 Samuel, which is really the same time period because Eli would have been the last judge? There was a little boy whose name was Samuel. His mom was barren. She couldn't have a child. But she went to the temple. It was a time so dark in the land of Israel that she prayed and poured her heart out to God that the high priest didn't really know what it looked like to have a woman that prayed with such fervency. And he just assumed she was drunk and just babbling there at the altar. But she was pouring her heart out to God and God granted her request. And Samuel was born and the Bible says that she lent Samuel to the Lord, meaning this, God, you take this boy and do what you can do. And when God couldn't use an old man named Eli, whose eyes were physically dim, but whose spiritual eyes were also dim, God was able to speak to a boy probably no more than seven or eight years old named Samuel, who changed the trajectory of that nation again back towards God. And that happened in the midst of the timeline of the book of Judges. Don't tell me that we have to be molded and shaped and conformed by this world. We should be the transformational force in this world. Well, pastor, they won't believe it. Well, that's not for us to worry about. We just do what we can do. We leave it to God and let him do what only he can do. Gideon and Barak, I mean, they're all in Hebrews chapter 11. In the midst of all of that, men and women of faith were tried in the crucible and were made stronger. So I know the way it is out there. And we need to address that and we need to talk about it sometimes. We don't apologize for that. But if that's all we focus on, we forget the fact that there's not one entity in the world that can force us to walk away from God. The world's not that powerful. Be a Gideon. Be a Deborah. Be a Boaz. Be a Ruth. Be a Samson.
in the midst of a dark world, we can be culture changers. Whether we see it or not, this side of eternity, whether it happens or not, we just do what we can and leave it to God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in His Word.